Good afternoon, a morning, a night. Welcome to the uh, May 11 edition of the Odelay Show with C.G. Brazewell. Um, today's program entails a discussion about uh, people and their behavior. Um, I, uh, it's kind of a dark assessment, but... Um, <clears throat> a uh, an understanding of of people is important for people and uh, in order to you know make the best of it and f- in terms of engaging right action um, uh, sociology is important uh, you know social sciences are important um so admittedly a dark assessment here i mean arguably not necessarily i mean it's kind of if you think of it as straight line logic <clears throat> you know um pretty philosophically clear um assessment is what it is a necessary one because certain facts simply have to be aired out in order for uh, uh us to move forward with our lives so uh, more specifically about people um, and phenomena of society, and that is war. It's, um, you know, it, we, we go to great lengths institutionally to avoid war um, and do all sorts of backbending over and grandstanding. Um, and if it's a war of one kind to avoid a war of another kind, is that, can you have a better war than, than the alternative war? Um, so I, I make mention of, uh, culture war, race war, gender war. These are the things that I encounter every day. It is virulently insidious it's horribly damaging i mean it's it's just terrible um you know and significantly we have to be careful of falling for everything we see or hear or read believing things that's true on this show two years ago i asked Richard Mack, who took um, a Second Amendment argument all the way to, is a lawman in Arizona and a politician, and he took a Second Amendment argu- argument all the way to the Supreme Court and won um, regarding, I believe, some sort of federal registration, federal uh, you know, regulation or another of firearms. And at the, I mean, he was a career lawman, and he runs, runs or ran or runs an organization called the Constitutional Sheriffs and Peace Officers Association. And we're talking about people and governance of people and by people and the importance of, um, you know, uh, uh, political office that which has a common law precedent in its application, such as governors and sheriffs. And so we were talking about people and the governance of people and the management of people and the enforcement of laws. And one of the main things that, you know, he's organizations trying to get across you know, as a message for the law enforcement personnel. That is to say, 
as much as in if the job is significantly if not mostly the protection of constitutional uh liberty you know or natural liberty what what the what what the constituency believes to be something that goes without saying about our one's right to go unmolested as much that's what those positions of public trust entail as much if not entirely or certainly if not more so than than the enforcement of you know justice after the fact and his concern is that uh, a lot of the times you have coerced public office where they no longer are operating in the interest of the principles of liberty that you know the what philosophically people you know believe to be obvious you know axioms of the right to be not hassled just by whomever even if they have some sort of credential doesn't make them right so anyway and i asked a lot a lot of resetting there but i i asked him during that interview i said to what extent is all of this business going on in the marketplace of ideas and in the political and public rights of ways and just in general in society american society in the world to what extent is this a drill you know and he's a speaker and it's like and it stopped him down it you know it, he there was silence i mean he he liked the question because it's not always to the same extent and sometimes people are really serious and they really do hate you and you don't even know it or know why and then sometimes it's like this elaborate farce just to make a point um so um you know and so sometimes there really isn't a war instead of their alternative of war being there and then sometimes there is sometimes people hate you and wish you ill or worse and you don't even know you're at war that's one of the things that shocks me about the, some of the darker faces of humanity is it like like for me, I, I'm at, I'm evidently, you know, at war and don't know it. You know, I'm not, you know, I've, I've learned that I'm not a pacifist, but I'm, I am nonviolent, politically nonviolent, um, like, you know, traditional historical, you know, figures you can think of you know um yeah i'm a vegan and uh uh you know you know all sorts of you know i borrow heavily from you know various world religions um philosophies rather um and anyway um so it always shocks me to find out that i am the subject of someone's extreme ire and war breeds along family lines. So when you come up against institutionalized hatred like that, it's not fresh. It's not brand new. It's a cauldron that's bubbling as old as time itself. And older than this world. And it is nasty. So you got to watch out. Because in some instances we have done better and evolved past it. And so others we haven't. This is all from the hip. I haven't even started reading from my script yet. So I'll just start. War. 
War breeds at a policy level, or as a policy, intergenerationally. And that's where it's always come from, historically. Hatred, killing, and violence is taught as a comeuppance for a well-established, known, traditional way of life. Easily recognizable by historians and, and the like, scholars of, the, of such things. Parameters of it are uh, transmitted the same way that is uh, like they tend to be kind of unenlightened rubs that maybe don't hold water anymore, but they're sufficient to maintain a warlike uh, posturing over multiple generations. And why it's important to have it go over one generation is so that it has an ability to walk over multiple generations, which can make it for ostensibly forever, or applicably forever. War over one generation won't last, and therefore it can't be, you know, definitively, you know, a successful war. Because war kills, and doesn't just halfway kill, it kills all forever. I mean, that's the type of mentality that you're dealing with. So the, the lines, the scratch points are racial equivocation, right? Um, gender and sex, religion and ethnicity. I mean, things that you can hate someone over. They don't have to be. Hatred's not rational. It's a raw, surd emotion. You know, we know that. All of these things, racial equivocation, race, race ethnicity, gender, even sex, Teleologically, biologically, politically, you know, in terms of long-term universal history, these are all political dispositions. These are all a result of politics, like depending on how you look at it, how one considers it. I mean, in my view, objectively, that's exactly what these things are. Form-following function. This is biological reduction. It's just you know time out of mind manifestations come up um, in the life that manifests in the universe that reflects the terrain of the universe both politically and geographically astronomically so I mean at some point you know this stuff is after or before the fact and like I said it doesn't have to be a good reason so hate for hatred. And just to reset, I mean, I can't know at what point in people's walk of life, you know, they're at. Just to reiterate, judging people by their skin color is not, is wrong. Skin color alone. You know, and it can skin color, by the way, can change dramatically over a single lifetime. It's certainly over a couple of generations. Right. You know, um, DNA can do great things. Are you, you know. And. You know, unless you're a robot or a stuffed animal, an inanimate object, you know. Existence and living changes you and the way you look changes an individual. Inside and out. Sexuality? Also, you're wrong. Sexuality is people's expression of the most pristine, beloved, 
intimate, peaceful. It's the sort, you know, it's, it's one of the primary sources for peace. If not, you know, many would say the main source. When misapplied or used as a device of, you know, a war tool, then it can have, be extremely devastating. And we see examples of that, you know, in the, in the, um, in society, in, in civilization, historically. That's why, to me, history is becoming more and more of an uh, enticing field for my graduate school canvassing. Um, you know, my opinion, my perspective, my objective academic perspective is we're all gay. It's the natural state of consciousness, of life, unsoiled, you know, before being influenced. Children don't aren't born with a bias. They're not born hating. Based on color, based on sex, based on nothing. They're not. They don't have it. They have to be taught. Um, you know, it's the natural state of life. That lack of having been bitten and having a conviction that says, out of hand, I'll judge you negatively. It's the magic of incumbent fate and free will, without which, you know, there is no, you know, I had a, I'll talk about a little bit this later in the show. A couple of shows ago, I did a, uh, an editorial on postmodern civilization, whereby there are kind of two different societies living concurrently at the same time, one enlightened and one not. And be careful. Always keep an open mind. Be careful. Don't be afraid, but be cautious. You know, that you don't close your mind. The degree to which one doesn't think that that state of non-discrimination, I mean, you, one can be discriminating, but what I mean, I'm not talking about, you know, you have to be discriminating to, discriminating to think analytically. That's fine. But I'm talking about a, a prejudice that's unethical. Um, so the degree that one doesn't think so, like is basically the extent to which one is unable to be honest with oneself about the fundamental facts of consciousness and social awareness. You know, sex and gender also aren't the same thing. It's largely a control mechanism, largely the, either the product, usually, you know, of which work. It can be easily changed, or it can be made to take forever to change. There are gender wars. Now, today. You know, I have a big problem with labels. I've said this before. I try not to label myself. It gets me in a lot of trouble because I won't flash a, cr a certain credential in the kind of the common marketplace. But that's you. Keep, that's to that is not in my. You know, I have a problem with that. Philosophically, I have a problem with that, and I pay a relatively strong. I feel like I pay a pretty strong price for it. There should be, I suppose, at some point. You know. Some sort of kickback. I don't know, but I, I, I don't know. People don't like it that you don't say, hey, I'm like this, without speech first. And then they start talking to me, and they're like, oh, this guy rattles like a freaking can of uncooked beans. So anyway, um, gender is a control mechanism, basically. The, particularly the binary, binary protocol of it, affectations of gender can easily be changed. It's a controller culling mechanism. The affectations of gender can easily be changed and they're 
you know, infinitely more than two of them. You know, take the time to get to know people because every, you know, everyone's unique. And, you know, to me, that's part of what gaiety is, is people being honest with themselves and with the world around them that they're unique and everyone's unique. So, you know, the person you blow off or prejudice could have been your best friend or your, you know, your partner or your spouse. So hatred is taught and learned. It's not innately necessarily. Children aren't born with it, although they can learn it easily and early and often do. Unenlightened thought or war and hate are unnecessary unenlightened practices and they're passed on from generation to generation and the primary institutions that do it these days, in my view, are the what I'll call the secular churches. <clears throat> the buildings full of people that claim to be proclaiming, you know, they have a certain name out on the side of it. That's not what they're doing. They're just rat traps. It's too bad that you can't, you know, see a label on a building and then that's what's going on in there. It's unfortunate. So what I call the secular churches are institutional religion. But in shorthand and for all intents and purposes and, you know, without going into, you know, organizations in absentia and individual you know faiths war and hate are unnecessary unenlightened practices and they're passed on from generation to generation the primary institutions that do it are the churches full stop actually so in good faith alchemists and spiritualists and monastics and hermetics and proper shapeshifters aren't you know any more welcome in these secular churches than any other targets of these organizations these become the cogs of war this is where they this is where the people you know the fodder for ongoing generations of war that unenlightened silo of civilization are farmed up so yeah war is not enlightened policy but it's a standard unavoidable protocol to it it has that you know notwithstanding that everyone involved ultimately will pay with their life but undesirable as war is, and nevertheless it's there, and there are ways of it. There are ways of war. You know, to win at war, for example, there must be subsequent generations indoctrinated into the practice. It's recruiting. So there can be relative safety in numbers and social resources to deploy, you know, and brand management. You know. You know, and if a military really wants blood, they have to look to the religious institutions for clearance. And they can get it there. They can't get it from any enlightened protocol. Generally speaking, that's how it is. I've seen it. And it's, you could deduce that's probably the case, but now that I've seen it, I'm pissed off about it. Believe it. I rest a credential on it, which I've earned and had and tested over some long years now. So unenlightened thought generally governs the earth. All right, and this is kind of the dark assessment that I talked about earlier. And I know it sounds like I'm just grouching, and I have been a little under the weather. <laughs> and I wrote this, you know, whatever. You know, just we got to look at this in order to shine a light in order for there to be light. All right, let's just be cool. You know, I have a big problem with unenlightened thought gathering excuse me, governing a platform on which I reside. 
we'll go on more about the attributes of this platform a little later. So humanity on Earth doesn't have to be, you know, doesn't have to have had nothing but constant war throughout its entire history. And certainly not in modern history, but it doesn't have to, but it does. And where, where we've eliminated hot war, um, as I mentioned earlier at the top of the program, and it's not a cold war that's taken its place, but a, but a, uh, it's just a, it's a darker war. Just, um, you know, because it's it it quacks like an old hot war in that it's having had to have been bred over forever, basically, in order to keep that pot boiling. So it comes at you like the same sort of abject, you know you know, black death without reason, you know, without negotiation, without attempts um, at uh, reconciliation or, or mediation or arbitration, nothing. And then that's one of the, one of the keys to war winning a battle. You can always win if you take your, uh, your adversary unawares and you know you you calculate you got okay well he's got three people and they're unarmed he or she them it they we have 20 people all armed to the teeth and essentially whatever the factors are you come in knowing what you know and knowing that you're that your prey is unprepared you can go and wipe them out that's one of the very few only ways to be sure to win something. That's the law of the jungle. That's those are facts. Those are that's physical science. So when people have taken on that mindset, they're not negotiating. You know, it's too late. These are what. That's why we call them bear traps. This is the law of the jungle. Went and saw Jungle Book, the new one, with my son a few weeks ago in the theater. Anyway, uh, Bill Murray was the bear, the voice of the bear, by the way. Good, good. Go see it, if, if only just to see uh, Bill Murray. So anyway, it doesn't have to be that way. War is not a necessity. Um, uh, but it's the reality, one way or the other. I mean, there has been pros- progress, but, you know, and we'll, I'll put the question, you know, like, to what extent is it possible and can we, and what is the, what are the, what is the protocol of living in? concurrently where there are two civilizations essentially living side by side one enlightened and one not when you have the risk of such bear attacks or bear traps as i mentioned so doesn't have it's not a necessity but it's a reality and this is due to unenlightened thinking and unenlightened governance and philosophically it presents the standard problem of a, one of the standard problems like uh, in democracy that is the tyranny of the majority. All right? As a mob rule. Mobs aren't correct. <laughs> They're not right. That's not right agency. Uh, mobs you find in battle zones as well. That's a less certain way to fight a battle, but it's, you know, look at your history books. With You're the grain of salt that you need when looking at history books. And... Mobs are they're easy to scramble. You know, that was your first press. 
going to press this issue with a mob. You know? So, you know, that they, you know, yeah. I hate to uh, invoke the Game of Thrones, but um, look how, look how they, the, the, uh, the, uh, the, the landed lordships, you know, manipulate the people. Um, the, the, uh, in the cities. Um, so tyranny of the majority in the United States of America and any such tyranny is supposed to be interceded by, you know, the Bill of Rights. It should be self-evident, right, these things, but it's, you know, measures in response are helpfully reiterated or iterated in such documents as the Bill of Rights. And it certainly can be, but, like, for me, it usually takes, like, one's entire career to get any sort of, like, conviction, so to speak. Well, that's, it depends on what your career is. Um, so this mulishness, I think, um, I mean, people need to be more aware politically. You know, I think the mulishness of, of uh, doing anything about the tyranny of the majority is a consequence of general cowardice or at least an unwillingness among the people to place an executive check on unenlightened policy. I think also part of it is is that it's sometimes not the tyranny of the majority. It's the tyranny of what's made to look like a majority, but it's just basically a handful of, you know, private people who control the means to capital or the capital. So when you try to deal with tyranny of the majority and mitigate it, it doesn't work because what you're actually dealing with isn't a majority. That's something to think about. There's a big ethical difference between hawkish policies and being warlike nation or warlike people. And I think that the natural fallen state of humanity is warlike. And I think the natural progressive state or enlightened state of humanity is by definition not warlike and very forgiving. <laughs> um, you'd be surprised how humanity can forgive. You know, enlightened humanity can forgive. And you'd be surprised, you know, you know, a warlike countenance will remember transgressions and misdeeds. So, in order to perpetuate war. There's a big ethical difference between hawkish policies and warlike policy. You know, warlike inclinations do not reflect enlightened thought or enlightened policy and therefore are in the offing as part of the universal losership. It's dangerous to be at war. So that is, that's why, for example, so many people find themselves in a downward spiral, I feel, is because if one has cast one's lot among the, you know, um, unenlightened, there can only be defeat at the end of that path eventually. And eventually, even if it's a long, long time, it's much sooner than forever, which is ultimately where, like, true intellectual victory or, you know, Peace at heart are to be found. The point I'm making is not to preach, but there, you know, to sound that way. But rather, the point I'm trying to make is that wrongheadedness and unethical activity, whether directly or whether it's conducted through political channels, even if it's you know is 
not a sustainable for any of its constituents. There's guilt by association there politically. And the proletariat is an incumbent. Um, proletariat is an incumbent if it can't swear off, you know, institutional violence. So I'm tired of, you know, <clears throat> politics is supposed to be something that to prevent as an option to prevent um, fisticuffs and violence for nations and factions at odds. All the game theory that came along with the uh, technological jumps in the 20th century and the military gaming theory that came up, those are the, that was the birth of alternatives to hot war. It isn't perfect. Um, and I'm reminded of that original series Star Trek episode where they would just flush some of the constituency out the transporter there, whatever they had, like cylinder thing. It was better than actually going and fighting a battle. Just as a game of numbers. <laughs> that's not perfect. Okay? And that's tantamount to what some of the things that happened back in the in the uh, in the mid twentieth century, you know. Um according to the Secular history, um, you know, but but uh, at least they're working on it. So, like, tired of being, you know, and the politics, uh, the political uh, egresses are supposed to, you know, espionage is a function of war, and it isn't politics. <laughs> okay, all right. Everybody hear that up there, over there? That's true. Just defining terms here. You're doing something else if you're doing espionage. And it is what it is. But you can't call it one thing. You can't run for office saying this and then do this. Maybe you should, you know. And you should be a little more out about what standards you're bearing. Okay? Um... Anyway, it's a politics, and I, you know, kind of, I get tired of being deployed against my will. I mean, I'm trying to be as mindful as possible against doing things like as, acting as a dead hand to anything, you know. Like I won't. I've often I try to basically stay unaffiliated with a political party. <laughs> I have to work as a, uh, as an independent. It helps also. I think it's good to kind of keep things separated as an investigator. That's good for me. I, I think I've already said this in the show. I went and registered with the Green Party to vote in the Arizona PPE and then and then got off again back to an independent. But I, otherwise, I couldn't have voted in that. Um, so, tired of being deployed against my will, you know. Uh, culture wars, religious wars, race wars, economic wars, gender wars, all of it. Sick and tired of that. Um... You know, I'm tired of seeing the public trust violated. I grant you that generally most of the organized, unenlightened thought is privately organized, and public office is derelicted as a result of often a widespread and overwhelming ethical vacancy among the constituency in a private sense, 
our constituencies. But, I mean, I think we can, it, there's enough data, we can observe a trend to where if the, um, the unorganized people organize, they far outnumber, you know, um, what appears to be a vast majority of like contemporary moralists or something. And we'll talk about church and state in a moment, the separation of it. And I think that that's just a bit of a cycle. You know, is it possible once we organize to forget and in a few generations, the next thing you know, we're, you know, we're being abusive to our labor force and we've reverted to, you know, a harsh caste system and just become part of the game that, you know, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I think, you know, times like a river, you can't say all things being equal in such a circumstance, but power does corrupt. I think we can certainly, we can say that. Um, privately organized, unenlightened thought is the arguably, okay. I'm theorizing main source of organized, unenlightened thought. Excuse me. That privately organized, unenlightened thought is the main source of organized, unenlightened thought is a damnable thing because of exactly who institutionally it puts under scrutiny. It's the leadership in this. All right. Who it's the leadership of institutions assembled freely by rights and in accordance by with first amendment, for example, first amendment liberty that are, you know, often bearing the mantle of backward, oppressive, hateful, murderous, blind, ignorance, and fear. Now, are they, they're, they're radicals and they're loud and they're, you know, they're wrong. You know, if they're categorically wrong where they're categorically wrong. And, you know, they're teaching it too. But they're loud and, you know, that's, they, that's, that's important. It wouldn't be such a desperate, pedagogical thing for them and cause to be so loud about it if they didn't badly, you know, need to reproduce. So anyone who's going to be careful, I mentioned earlier about acting as a blind hand in some of the marketplaces, a complex interweaved phenomenon. It's not just, you know, dollar for a day or whatever. I mean, with all sorts of things, information on markets, you know, just stuff that's, plain view and plain sight stuff that's not so you gotta be careful regardless of what institution you solicit or aware um, anyone who swears off bygones as bygones by way of a, an institution that disregards past transgressions you know while continuing to potentially transgress today as a class is you know, lead, lending tacit support to historically transmitted, excuse me, uh, historically, uh, historically transacted transgressions. And that, that ends up being, I mean, it contributes to mob rule and mob apathy because it sets the, it sets the executive function down at the mob level. Like, ugh, just very flippantly, flip a wrist. Well, but, what's being equivocated is of a higher order principle, you know, war or not war, uh, you know, or, you know, misery or not misery or failure or not, f 
failure of a civilization. So that's where, in a marketplace, the exchange is not either properly labeled or it's done in bad faith and it's occluded or it's done in ignorance. You know, and even if the subject's unaware of it, you have a right to be interested in finding out. And, you know, don't be afraid, but be cautious. You know, and for, use your own individual forensic aptitude, if you will. It's there. You know, try to ask some questions. Why is all? Why has everything always been done this way? Well, you start thinking about that. You start looking into it, and you realize at the bottom of that, no one's going to give you. No, they people either don't know or they do. And the people who do and keep doing it are problems. Because usually, if there's something that's m- mysterious about something, then there's something suspicious about it. There's a reason why it's not, you know, what the, what the the trick isn't disclosed. And just because it's been going on for a long time that it's intergenerational is absolutely no reason for it. To, oh, okay. Well, that's a good enough reason. No, it's no reason at all. That's not an answer. So a little bit about separation of church and state in the United States of America, like legalistically speaking, all right, according to, you know, rainbows and unicorns, European settlers, you know, made their way. This is what they taught us in grade school, you know, to the West, often because they wanted to get away from long-standing institutional problems of religion intermingling with or entirely, entirely replacing secular government in Europe, like basically escaping a political climate where the churches had too strong a role in the governance of all citizens' daily lives. Okay. State religion. So when the same problem comes up today in the United States of America in modern times, it's an ironic thing and easily recognized by grade school children should be. You can see that. So the establishment clause, clause of the First Amendment says Congress shall make no law regarding the establishment of religion. Congress, that's the citizens lawmaking the Congress is the vested authority in making laws they represent the citizens lawmaking vesting legislative vesting so the Congress the lawmaking protocol make no law regarding the establishment of religion that goes both ways that is there is (laughs) supposed to be an exclusivity, excuse me, an exclusivity between religious law and, you know, the secular state. There's supposed to be, excuse me, I'm stuttering, and there's supposed to be an exclusivity between religious law and the secular state. It's supposed to be. So Byzantine ecumenical law, which is can be easily secularized by the state and applied and enforced by the state, I think I've spotted a trend here. By that same hand, can easily be inter- interceded as a viol- you know, a liberty violation, and can be defended against by the state. 
That's just a matter of being politically aware. Because ecumenical law is essentially just family blood law. And it's not right either. We're all family. And that's what wars start where the emotions are hottest among family. People cohabitating. That's it. Basically just after, you know, cave people, if you will. If you want to take the traditional stone, you know, you know, geological kind of history of, you know, earth as it's taught. Um, Ecumenical law was often, you'd find it enshrouded in a religious mantle, but all it is is family, which is essentially civil law, but you still see it today. I worry that that's some of what I'm running into with the, in the secular churches. And that's why they're secular churches. That's pure civil law. But it ends up being outside and a big violation of, a, you know, basically civil rights. Maybe not for everybody. Maybe for me. Uh, you know, growing up. Maybe I earned that extra learning curve somehow. But I'm seeing it happen. So I, I do know that it can't happen. I'll say it one more time so that it's clear because I spoke in circles. But ecumenical law is essentially civil law. Although historically, and that's part of why people were leaving Europe for the United States to get away from civil law being enshrined in church dogma. And you still see it here today. But that's wrong. It doesn't have to be that way. So, you know, citizenry, there's, there's relief there. So if, anyway, I'll just get back into the general sense. Your church says no queers or no blacks or no poor people, notwithstanding the key ethical issues that such policy denotes. And it's certainly a problem. Philosophically, in my perspective, as it Nevertheless, that doesn't have any bearing on, you know, what your organization and its hatred doesn't have any bearing on secular policy. The Establishment Clause is interpreted as in support of the Free Exercise Clause to have no bearing on the public policy. Basically, you're entitled to your bias or your hatred. Go kill yourself right now. You You know, but that doesn't mean that you, you know, You have a right to disturb others. The right to teach it, that was an ethical question that came up in my constitutional law classes in in, uh, college. And, you know, that's basically recruiting, indoctrination. If you get snared, it's tough, buddy. (laughs) You know, and and, um, you call somebody out when they're doing it and they have the the, uh, force behind them. You might be finished. And if they can't finish you there, they'll create a polit- a political bear trap for you. Um, it's organized. That's the sort of war that I've run into. I'm a nice guy, but there are people at war with me. <clears throat> and it, I'm I'm indignant about it. It angers me. Because, and I'll go on about this in a little bit later in the show, I've gone to some lengths to, you know, you know, I've, I've had a practice of, of, um, of kindness to all beings for a long time. And it went on for so long that I know 
I know in my heart of hearts that I have done some good for everybody philosophically. And so when people turn on me, it, it, you know, this, this is where this is, that's where I would have sworn in this show. So I won't swear this show, I suppose. Well, I should, we should never say never, but, but that's it. I have a problem there. Okay. Because if I can have some patients like that, then so can they, you know, and that's not in kind response. That's people just giving up and being blind and making other people's world darker just out of sheer meanness and a lack of self-restraint for the citizens to be apathetic at large is to fail in our duty as citizens of the universe. Therefore we fail uh, to be good neighbors. You know, if we fail to be good neighbors then we fail as Americans too. Okay. All politics is local. So by that same hand, you represent the standard you bear, no matter where you are. You know, you're still an American wherever you go. You know, so that's in terms of domestic and foreign policy at whatever level of politics. You know, so war is taught as an institution. It does not have a constructive net value. War is a religion, I would argue. There is a wand to be waved there. I've said that before. War is a religion. Um, it has a magisterial presence. It has its own supporters and caucus, people that worship it, people willing to die for it. You know, death's a religion for many people. I mean, there are a lot of the black, you know, a lot of the black ops of religion, you know, of end up, you know, war catches a lot. It's a significant, you know, freaking demographic as a cottage industry. So there's, it's a religion, and, but there's no freedom in it. In war, because in war, the result is ultimately always the same for all parties involved, whether directly or indirectly. That is through knavery. Communities are suffering from war, as is ours. I'm pretty sure I've come up against the real thing. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, I have. Communities are suffering from war which can be thought of as a social disease, yet forensically, in terms of social science, the forensics of social science, they're not functioning with their full faculty. There's mental illness, you could argue. You know, in a social science, forensic perspective. And that uh, includes, you know, humanity as a categorical community. So that makes it emergent even for those of us who hold ourselves to be to nonviolent standards but must cohabitate in a world that has civilizations that are widely and unabashedly and unashamedly and outspokenly at war with one another. So at some point, so I think that answers the question that I kind of talked about earlier. It's like, well, what do we do? How do we kind of handle it politically when you got more than one society, if you will, living on the same platform? Well, I think that kind of answers it. I mean, going out and saying it, you know, you're going to stop it. 
So at some point, I mean, you know, separate the party. What do we do when we go to respond to a domestic violence call as local peace officers? Separate the parties. Okay? You know, usually there's, when there's something going down, usually there's some sort of alcohol or drugs involved. Figure out that. Then dispatch a detail to just deal with the logistics of the narcotics interdiction outside and apart from the investigation of the civil disturbance. Keep them separated. See, try to get get them into the courts, and into detox, into a substance abuse program, if you can. Try to salvage the family. Well, I guess just scatter shooting here, but at a at a blush, that be one of the ways I started considering about how to do it at a you know a collective level. <laughs> so at some point, which for me is basically now. You know, one must cut one's losses as a body or as an individual, as a community, as a society. War is not politically legitimate. Knavery is something else. Politics is a type of applied ethical protocol. That's the alternative to violence and preparation for violence. And ethics is one of the philosophical foundations, and so look no further for an argument against the legitimacy of war as enlightened policy. Keep an eye on your hawkish constituents, if we're going to call them that. We discussed, let's uh, guy said this earlier, two OLA shows ago regarding postmodern civilization and its, quote, two civilizations existing concurrently, one enlightened and the other not. That's worth a listen, and it's uh, of relevance to the the political uh, question of how and if it's possible to cohabitate among unenlightened populations, and you know, and who are those who are averted to war relentlessly. That show was the February twenty fifth edition. Um, let's see what else. So the following is a little discussion about altruism. Um, so Ayn Rand essentially holds, I looked it up on Wikipedia, Ayn, you know, just altruism in the philosophical sense. Ayn Rand essentially holds that there is no rational ground to say that Sacrificing oneself in order to serve others is morally superior to pursuing one's own long-term natural, excuse me, long-term rational self-interest. And that altruism depends on non-rational rationales, if you will, or mysticism in some form. That is, chance or luck is incorporated into any value system based on altruism. You know, she would argue. Nietzsche holds that the idea to treat others as more important than oneself is degrading and demeaning to the self. And that it hinders self-development, excellence, and creativity, although... 
that he does assert a duty to help those who are weaker than oneself. Echo philosopher Arna Nass, according to Wikipedia, argues that, quote, environmental action based upon altruism or service to the other stems from a shrunken egoic concept of the self. Self-actualization will result, he argues, in the recovery of an ecological self in which actions formerly seen as altruistic are in reality a form of enlightened self-interest. All right. Professor Nass, in my mind, has it right. Um, such perspectives also accommodating of allowing natural law to reconcile unenlightened thought and action. Um, I mean, Professor Nass is also, I call him Professor Nass, I mean, it was, uh, also right regarding the ecological self in that I say one of the philosopher's stones, I'm telling you, is the discovery of scope which typically marks a watershed in anyone's path to knowledge. And it is the fact that our terrestrial mount is a living creature. It is. <laughs> um, that's why I don't have a, a wife, but I have a son, and my mom's gone, but I didn't have a bad Mother's Day the other day because um, there's magic in the world. It's important to know the fact alive All right. and beyond that the creature carrying me is also politically incumbent among like the greater universal body politic this is also true you know has rights inalienable rights and more so than individual humans agents particularly more so than warlike hateful unenlightened individuals in that court one is either for peace or not professor nass that's me talking but he's right um rand's perspective is typical of someone in my amateur view who experienced certain failures of communism as an institution. Um, she's also right in the early 20th century. She's also right that um, mystical, non-rational rationales are a total racket in the sense that it's a gamble or a, you know, or worse or a setup. Um, Nietzsche has a valid point. You know, he's important. Um, it does degrade and demean the principle under particular circumstances, particularly if it can, it can, you know, if the, if the, if the game is set up after such a fashion. I mentioned earlier, nonviolence versus pacifism. Nonviolence is not pacifist. There's a difference. All right. 
it's all right. You can be, you can, you know, but it's nonviolent. Um, I've written, spoken much about uh, helping others and viewing all others empathetically as some legitimately alternative version of myself. I've written about it in some of my nonfiction, I mean, probably some of my fiction. And I've talked about it on the show and I've applied it in my own um, day-to-day you know, living. I, uh, you know, I, um, I've done a contemplative practice for a long year since about the time I got out of college, which is getting closer and closer to 20 years, you know, what is it now? All right. So what is this? I got out in four. This is 16. All right. 14. I said 12 years ago. Um, not long after that, I, I, uh, I entered a Samadhi practice. Which is, and I've written about this, where it's a state of of mindfulness, of contemplative mindfulness. It's enduring. It's something that that um, Eastern monastics would would do, um, and due to kind of my wayward youth, I've uh, implemented a straight edge lifestyle. Um, over a number of years now that also has rarefying and clarifying effects on, uh, on, uh, on the, on one's consciousness. Um, and I was brought up, you know, in an organization that on its face paints itself to be the political legacy of basically an old Gnostic hippie who was, Killed by basically an angry mob, and um, and you know that was had been incited by the government, or vice versa, or both. Um, and got the message there, where it seems like most people don't. It's very strong. Um, it's all that is is basically that's that's family, that's bloodlines, that's you know, ecumenical politics. Um, but I guess I'm trying to say that I have gone to great lengths, even very, very young. I used to always say I wanted to be a, a philosopher. Um, very young. And, uh, you know, I'm a writer. Uh, and and so, you know, I've, I was very hungry for, 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 information and knowledge truth and i've sought it from all different various schools of thought um i've talked about this before i talked about this uh, in the uh i talked about uh, this this very this this pathway of mine in recent shows um point being um you know i've developed and basically hedged way off the secular uh, measures of uh, uh, of society, and I, I kind of pay the price for it. Like I have, I'm educated, but I don't have. You know, if you're a good journalist in the modern political climate, then you're not. If you're, you know, then you're not going to get hired in corporate 
realm. Okay. It's just this, it is a mutually exclusive state of being. And like, uh, you know, I kind of wondered how I ended up getting a journalism degree and then went and, you know, and I, I think I might have been sniffed out before I knew it. Lots of things about my career end up being kind of decided before I even come into it. I'm sure I have some posterior legacy hand in that, but I mean, I I have the metal to it, to you know, to stick to that sort of thing. Like it costs me. Like I don't. I've talked. You know, like I don't really have. I mean, I've I've basically wed myself to the career. It and at the at the cost of like one what what one might call a normal social life. I really you know, knowing what I know now about sociology and in terms of social life. And, you know, and people, I think the truth was worth whatever price I had to pay for it. Um, you know, I'm broke. I have to operate kind of on charity. Because um, I won't roll over. And I won't buy into scenarios that I'm not unaware, that I'm not aware of the magic or how the protocol works. It's usually when they won't tell you, there's something like something rotten. Like, oh, well, it's built on it an infinite history of murder and death. That's why it comes so easy. <laughs> Black magic. Well, no. You know, and now that I actually can put a finger on it like that, I'm glad that I didn't roll over. No, it's never too late to mend people, but I've, uh, uh, basically I've, I kind of, I got, I got a high, you know, barnstorming ethic. I don't really, you know, I only get along with other, you know, it's pretty, it's, I don't know. Um, but I've applied this practice of empathy regarding all other people to a fault, you know, and I've gotten burned for it. And I mentioned earlier, I, I've been, I've had such a practice for long enough now, like as a lay monastic, for example, in the Buddhist sense, that I know that my uh, uh, efforts at you know, universal mindfulness have affected, you know, certainly targeting and affected everybody that is every being who's incidental to me. That's how those old routes and those verses go in the, in, in the old, in the Dharma, may all beings, you know, that's really because that's how that sort of uh, teleology works causationally, right? Like, People won't, um, Gandhi or uh, Martin Luther King Jr., they wouldn't politically deploy tactics for peace that required violence. Because philosophically, in their mind, it was impossible to, to get that transaction to tender, ultimately, philosophically. So... That's what's being, and, and that, the Mahatma borrowed that from, from Jainism, and which, you know, is the crotch of the same continent where it, from which Buddhism was born. People are praying for all beings because at the end of the day, you can take care of that now. This is where karma comes into it. You got to deal with that stuff now. You'll be dealing with your next life. And the whole point of those religions is to not be trapped in the rebirth and dying over and over again. 
Um, so that's why, that's why you, uh, that's why those old chants go like they go. And you go sit in a zendo and you do it for long enough and you meditate for long enough and then you become involved and you start the group. There's power there. It's amazing. Wonderful. Like, like striking up a piper band. Just like the hair on your arm raised. It's, re- you know, it has real applied usefulness. Um, and also, we guffaw at this. Then listen to the show again and listen to the order in which I give these details and the caveats that I give for it. I'll even equiv- equivocate for the skeptics regarding the fact that in good faith, peaceable going forward is the only way that you, yes, you, individually you, are going to survive and live. Your soul. So suffer that. But anyway, in the same breath, I have been burned because of this. Yes, it angers me when I see people failing to meet my high bar of, like, ethics. I can only hope that they're learning. But I do know that they've got to be people that I have historically, like, tried to be, you know, kind to on a spiritual level. Uh, It has gotten me thrown out of pretty much all organizations which were founded in good faith by enlightened people, but which have been co-opted by an enlightened agency. Um, you know, seats of power, unfortunately, are, you know, invariably usurped. So one saving grace of the situation is it teaches us lessons about being subtle. Yes, it does. One saving grace of the situation is that these hijackings are largely semiotic in nature, but that doesn't make, not always, but often, in our contemporary environment of simulacra. But that doesn't make them any less dangerous, though. And luckily, these institutions can and may function in good faith in absentia, just through any old hack who happens to get it and be a nice person at heart. You know, it is on those people's shoulders who history must stand. Hence, Secularly there, is, secularly, there is little to no evident quarter for people actively engaged in right living. You just have to learn to swim. You can't come out and just say, hey, hey, because then you'll have detractors. It represents a threat to old established ley lines of war, basically, which are known if inferior but known ways to go about one's business you know not very forward thinking you know but um generally i get right living um what did i write here excuse me must be endeavor excuse me generally right living must be endeavored individually and not as a group anyway it's more effective that way if that's something you're going to do i'm not saying don't commit personally but you know with all due caveats do so only then as much as you can 
And there, you're going to have weak suits and strong suits. It's just, you know, you're going to have a back door that someone's going to get you from every time. But jeez, you know, eventually that'll become your strong suit. Not not as a group, but individually. Uh, I have, in my observation, ultimately maybe more difficult. But right living as an individual um, is you get, you, you know, it's more effective and more rewarding in the end because of the cowardly, predatory. And the exclusive aspects of groupthink. I mean, among other things. Uh, and also, you gain more personally out of it. And it's fine. to Merit is okay. Not at all costs. Of course, merit at the price of widespread death is not okay. I mean, assuming that you're thinking with me here. So I won't go on about social hardship and call cut to the chase about a policy change needed from my point of view i mean if there's an unenlightened mob at large and their welfare is not a priority insofar as you know they're violating the civil rule of law and it's like separation of church and state you know and right to assemble and you know they're animals and should be handled as such Two, in light of the key role that semiotics play in the coercion and bad faith policy implementations, they take a look again, a hard look, the small handful of privately held international corporations which control your and, and my media you know, sources and vectors. Now, I try to be out with my listenership and my readership as much as possible, publish an entire book entirely about my entire history. You know, I try to be as pretty, you know, as glad, uh, as transparent as possible. Because I personally, as a, as an individual, individuals have agency, and a lot of times that's in the marketplace. The, the the marketplace of ideas that's not really expounded very much, because that represents a threat to status quo such as war, such as control of, you know, information being isolated into only a few vectors. Semiotics, symbolism, media, information. Um, so if you're even hearing this, and if you've gotten off, the grid to that extent if you don't think it's a problem then you're probably part of the problem whether knowingly or unknowingly these organizations aren't acting in good faith and they survive by eating them their own and you'll see like you know to the degree that you know a malefactor doesn't know that it's a malefactor you know they're sure there can be ethical mitigators there Um, all right, so we'll end on that. I suspect it's that's one hour and eleven minutes here. It's probably good. So you can get this uh show. Thank you for listening to the uh may eleventh twenty sixteen edition of the Odele show in China. I believe it's the year one hundred and six. I think that's since the cultural revolution when that clock reset over there. Um, I'm not sure if we're still in the Taurus house 
Maybe we are in terms of uh, astrology. I should get a nice calendar here to read off to everyone. But that stuff matters. Um, just insofar as having some sort of alternate tracking mechanism so that you don't overhedge on one bank. Um, you know, download the show, listen to it on your, uh, on your portable media device. Um, brought to you by Brazewell Communications, www.fusepowder.com. That's Frank, Union, Sam, Edward, Paul, Ocean, William, David, Edward, Robert, fusepowder.com. That's Brazewell Communications, um, publishing. Uh, titles from our one of our favorite pulp fiction authors Denver Day in print and forthcoming one already written and one in uh, undergoing the final uh, final edit uh, also uh, publications by yours truly C.G. Brazewell being published through Brazewell Communications uh, this show archive in WordPress format at fusepowder.com slash WordPress. Um, updated as frequently as I uh, can have fresh content. If you would like to be interviewed on the show, if you're interested or interesting, call me. Telephone, text, video conference, 518 2729 Um... Also go look at, forgive me, backing up, denverday.com, D-E-N-D-E-R, excuse me, D-E-N-V-E-R-D-A-Y.com for the uh, fiction author Denver Day. Um, Thank you for listening, more or less at your service, uh, uh, with all due caveats. Good day, good night. Come back.